is JudoCast. We go to the mat and beyond with some of the most prominent minds in judo. Please welcome your host, a two-time Pan American champion, entrepreneur, and judo enthusiast, Chuck Jefferson. Our next guest needs no real introduction to the world of judo. During his extensive competition career, he garnered an astonishing eight European Championship medals, four World Championship medals, and two Olympic medals. He now serves the world of judo by way of live commentary and technical analysis. Over the last 30 years, through his work with the IJF and fighting films, he has become known to the world as the voice of judo. When he's not globetrotting on the tour, he spends time with his family in the UK, with his wife, Nikki Adams, who is also a judo player and a Canadian Olympian, as well as a Pan American judo champion. They run a successful educational business where they share high-level judo with the world. In part one of this podcast, we will discuss COVID-19 and its effects that it's having all over the world. We'll then talk a little bit about Neil's unfair advantage when it comes to coaching. He will discuss the importance of developing a technique and putting your own stamp on it. His years of judo experience in all different realms of judo has led him to become one of the most respected and the biggest sources of knowledge in the world of judo. He now serves as a referee supervisor for the IJF along with other world and Olympic medalists. I hope you enjoy this fun conversation that's going to put you in the room with one of the greatest judo players of our time. Please welcome to JudoCast, two-time Olympic silver medalist and world judo champion, Neil Adams. Okay, welcome everybody. I am joined today here with my good friend, Neil Adams. Neil, thank you so much for uh, joining me this uh, evening for you. I do appreciate having you. It's been a pleasure and uh, I've been looking to do this for quite some time. And just a quick background, uh, last year when you came to San Jose on your whirlwind of a tour, uh, we did a short podcast there on the uh, Neil Adams podcast. And at that time I told you, I said, hey, look, I've been thinking of starting a podcast and that was kind of the uh the push I needed to do of course it took a little bit longer and then COVID happened and kind of opened up my evenings in a pretty big way so here we are I've been doing it but it's uh it's been a lot of fun you know doing the podcast but thank you so much for joining me I really appreciate you spending the time and and, and coming on to it it's a pleasure an absolute pleasure and uh, we were just saying, weren't we? Just you, you look absolutely, totally professional there, mate. And we always <laughs> knew you were going to do it. But uh, brilliant. We've uh, listened to a couple of them. Brilliant stuff. Well, thank you. I'm glad you're enjoying it. And I've been uh, following everything you guys have been doing as well. Um, obviously, this COVID-19 has really, you know, shooken up the world in many ways. And, you know, to keep it personal between us is it's judo right judo's taken a, a huge hit with this virus and unfortunately with judo you know where we're at in california with a physical sport like judo we're the first ones to get shut down and we'll probably be the last ones to open back up so it's it's been hard for all the judo players all over the world i think it's been so hard for everybody we're a physical contact sport so we need that physical contact there's no you know we've seen all the fantastic innovations on on youtube and different things people trying to stay in shape and trying to do their different movements and you know we've we've been watching uh, obviously I, I, there's a high degree of stuff that 
it's been a little bit kind of suspect when it comes to the Uchikomi movements and different things that uh, people can do. And we, we said, well, let's put good quality stuff out there that people can follow. We might as well do good quality stuff as opposed to just doing judo movements for the sake of getting tired and staying in condition. So we might as well do it scientifically, but also technically correct, you know, which uh, was one of the main things that we've been trying to do. But I think it's spurred a lot of us on, especially with uh, uh, with our broadcasting, because we just finished our dojo uh, just right. before the crackdown came, you know, and, and it was, well, how are we going to use that for our business? And how are we going to really make that work? And now we know. For sure. You know, I remember last summer when you were here, you guys were talking about getting this finished. In fact, you were still going through some design ideas and things and uh, the timing couldn't have worked out, you know, more perfect for, for what you guys are doing and some of the, you know, instructionals that you guys are doing. Um, it, it's kind of interesting. You, you talk about like the, uh, the form and a lot of times because we don't have judo, we get in this thing where we're just trying to stay fit and we start doing things that may not be so technically sound. I have a, a, a small story in San Jose. We have, uh, we have a lot of great visitors that come to San Jose state over the years when I was part of the team there. And uh, Isao Okano, his kids all, you know, came to school in San Jose. And uh, one of his sons, Tetsu Okano, was same age as me. And we went to college together. And so Isao Okano is coming back and forth to the San Jose State, you know, judo team, you know, quite often. And at one point, you know, after I had graduated from college, I'm running the program. And, and we're doing what seemed to be a pretty standard exercise, you know, in judo. We're doing what we call speed uchikomis. And, and I see him sitting on the side of the dojo and he's kind of got his arms crossed and he's like, he's looking at me just, and he said, uh, you know, if you're going to do that, you might as well just go home and take a bath. It's a lot easier to lose weight. If you're just, if you just need, if you just need to lose weight, you know, doing that kind of movement's not going to help your judo. You might as well go home and relax in the bathtub and you'll lose just as much weight. And then he said, I think after your exercise, everybody in the dojo is worse at judo than they were before. And I just didn't, I you know, didn't even it, know how to respond. <laughs> well, you know, I'm always really nervous. You've probably seen some of the stuff that I've been putting out there, you know, but when I see people with uh, incorporating skills within their circuit training, and if you can't do it slow, you can't do it quick, you know, and, and the point is, is that it's much better when it comes to skills acquisition to slow the process down, increase the speed, but it needs supervision all the way through. And if it's not done properly, there's a 100% chance of it being wrong. And, you know, the mentality of, well, we're just doing it in our living room. We haven't got anybody else. And we go, better to do it correctly. And if it was me, I would go to uh, somewhere where I could see it done correctly as a skill. And then I would incorporate speed things into a circuit training that didn't incorporate judo movements, you know. So I agree with him 100%, and I can see exactly where he's coming from. And, and I'm always a bit nervous when I see these kids running up and doing sprints and shuttle runs, and, and you know, and every one of their judo movements is incorrect. Right. And it achieves nothing other than making them tired and they have a sweat and, you know, and I don't mean, I, you know, I don't mean that with absolute disrespect to some of the uh, innovative uh, workouts that some people are trying to come up with to keep the kids interested. But what I am saying is, is that we might as well make it separate them and, you know, incorporate the, the, um, the circuit training and then separate the skills and, start off slowly and make sure that the kids are doing it properly. 
It really and adults. It's not just it's not just kids. Right. For me, I have a lot of the kids were um we're going to the park. Of course I'm doing the classes online and stuff, but we're going to the park. Now we've kind of been opened up in the county we're in to do outdoor training. So we were just doing the other day, we were doing some real basic, not even judo movements, but like the karaoke runs where you're kind of moving your feet from side to side. And the kids think they know how to do it, and they, they do a little bit, but I said, let's break this down into three different pieces of this basic movement that you think you already know how to do, and they had a really hard time slowing it down and, and doing it properly. They just wanted to go, and I'm like, let's slow down. We're going to do one piece of this move. We're not doing the whole move, and before you know it, they're rushing through the whole thing. I'm like, let's slow down. It, it, it is quite a challenge because I agree with everything you said. If you can't do it slow, there's no way you can do it fast. Yeah, it's fit fit for what? It, you know, and, and I, I know I've written a couple of subject, a couple of uh, articles on, you know, what you're fit for and you, fit for 100 meters, for half a marathon or marathon, fit for judo that, you know, to you know, uh, as well as I know that there's no substitute for randering. That's what everybody's missing. Even the Japanese are missing it at the moment because they haven't had been able to, you know, get together for the amount of randers that they normally do. Right. So I, they will have been suffering, not quite as much as we do, but they've been suffering as well. And I think everybody all over the world, you know, uh, and we saw that um, I, I was watching it, uh, stuff on Ilias, you know, Ilias Iliadis, and I know that he's been training full out, you know, but they, they've had some problems with the uh, with the virus right. there. You know, so, I mean, the people that have been protecting themselves, doing the right things, you know, ha- definitely haven't been doing the randers, and you could be as fit as you want. You know, when it comes to circuit training, weight training, uh, but there's no substitute for a, for randers. You know, we need the randers. We do for sure. So, what are things like in the UK right now? Are you starting to see our, our dojos opening back up, or are you guys still on complete lockdown? No, they they've just started to come together. So they've uh, allowed small groups, so uh, couples that have been able to train together or be together, smaller groups. You know, so they're able to at least do one on one for the uchikomi and movement and nagikomi and things like that. A little bit of randori, right. but it's one on one randori. You know what it's like. You know, I mean, uh, you need different styles, different people, you, you, you need all the variations, you know, and uh, uh, it's, um, yeah, I, I just did a, an article, just did it, it's just come out on left against right, stuff like that. Well, you, that's just one situation that, you know, that we need to be able to combat. Right. And you, of course, then you've got all the other situations that we need. But, um, you know, without mass, we, we find it difficult. But uh, I think that they've just started here. And I know that in the States, certain parts of the States, they're, they're back in the clubs. I cannot imagine what it's like with a face mask to do. I mean, with 34 degrees here now, which is about 105, I think. Right. Uh, you're, you know, so that for us is just so hot. It's just, you know what, the, uh, the Brits are like extreme cold or extreme hot. I mean, we're, we're absolutely useless. Yeah. Totally. So in California, I mean, well, the United States is so big. We have so many different, you know, the way they're enforcing the policies. Even within California, we have something like 50 different counties in California. And every county has a different uh, way they're applying the rules. In my particular county, in Santa Clara County, we were the first ones to go on lockdown. I think on March 14th, we were pretty early. One of the earliest cases of COVID happened in Santa Clara County. 
And, um, you know, we still have not been able to open up. Now they're not allowing indoor cardiovascular exercise of any kind. So a lot of the gyms are taking things to the oh. parking lot. So there's my gym is completely <clears throat> locked down. We don't even go inside. So right now we're doing online classes. And then just in June, you know, in the summertime, we started, they started allowing outdoor training, but no indoor cardiovascular exercise. So it's a challenge. Wow. In the home, you can do it in the home. You can do it in the home, but no, pri- you know, no businesses are going to be able to open that are offering any kind no, of no uh, private, right? Yeah, so it, it's a big challenge. So, wow. so with all of your training, I mean, I've been following a lot of stuff. You've been able to take advantage. I mean, I don't know if I call it take advantage, but you've done a very good job of of utilizing your skills. And you know, I've been watching some of your technique uh, breakdowns and some of your analysis that you're doing on Facebook, and I think that is just awesome. If you can sit there. You know, we do it in the dojo, but sometimes even in the dojo, you just want to run Dory. But when, when you've got people's attention online and you're going to go over Uchimata for 20 minutes straight and I don't have the ability to do Randori right now, it's actually kind of nice to say, hey, I, I can actually focus on everything he's doing because I, I know I don't get a real chance to, to go out and apply it right now. So it gives me a chance to really watch and, and give it a little bit of a more, you know, analysis in my own mind while I'm watching. So I think I've been really enjoying some of the breakdowns you've done and, and hopefully a lot of the followers have been enjoying it. Well, I really hope so. You know, we've we've been doing it for the for their interest. Of course, from a tactical point of view, most of the stuff that we've done so far is high level, right. you know. But then, of course, there's tactical, uh, uh, more technical analysis that uh, we're doing for lower levels. And uh, you know, obviously, we we deal with both kind of spectrums. And uh, you know, but yeah, hopefully, people find it really interesting. I just tried to pick topics that people can uh, look at and uh, you know like Newaza, I've just done a Newaza one and it really is just looking at the catch situation of Newaza, how it differs from the BJJ form of Newaza. you know you can't really compare the two in in, in some ways because uh, it's all about speed of entry speed of catch you know catch what you want uh, uh, what you need, and also a uh, quicker application. <clears throat> but the referees, of course, now are giving it more time. But there is a difference. But it, I think good for the BJJ people as well to understand what the difference is, you know, because, I mean, you tend to get into your own little bubble, don't you? You know, well, we're the kings of, of groundwork and nobody else can do it. Right. But ours is a different form of groundwork. It's a, a different form. Uh, of Newaza. It's a lot faster and it's a, a different kind of a game. Uh, but, um, you know, we we appreciate, obviously, the skills and the skill levels of, of the BJJ and, you know, they've taken it to another uh, stratosphere. You know, it's just amazing, really, what they've done. Do you see a lot of people in the UK cross-training both in, in both directions? You know, jiu-jitsu guys coming to yeah. judo clubs and, and vice versa? Or do you, do you see a lot more crossover? Yeah, a lot more crossover. And, you know, our job is to get them to understand. I mean, what they what they can't do, of course, is the standing as well as the uh, judo guys. They haven't got the standing uh, capabilities and the understanding of, of the uh, balance lines and direction lines and and movement and the importance of the throwing into transitioning into the, the groundwork, because I think that that's really important. They can't possibly understand that because they don't do it. Right. Uh, so good for them to understand that. So we have a lot of the uh, BJJ guys coming over to um, to have a look at the throwing and to understand more about the throwing. 
but I, I think also uh, it gives them an appreciation when they haven't got time to build the newaza that it's it's a different form of groundwork when they're doing it or when somebody's throwing them into a situation it's different form and also uh, i can choose to stand up as well you know so it makes it slightly different right and i think if, if you've got somebody um judo guys doing bjj to improve their newaza to improve their groundwork then i think that they've got to put their judo hat on as opposed to a bjj hat on if they're going to get full benefit out of it because otherwise they're going to miss certain opportunities when they start to cross it over to their judo practice because they're not going to be fast enough in they're not going to get catch it uh, quick enough so they've got to get there you know they've got to go in there with a judo brain i think yeah i think i've i've had that experience with not just jujitsu practitioners but you know all across the board you know teaching all the years i've had a lot of different you know martial arts practitioners of different kinds that come in you know, some with different agendas, you know, they want to learn judo for their whatever they're doing. And and, and that's yeah. always my opinion is that you've got to learn judo for judo. You know, I'm not an expert in Muay Thai or whatever it is that you might do. So don't come to me to figure out how I can help you with your Muay Thai or don't even come to me with how I can help you with your jujitsu immediately. Come here to learn judo for what judo has to offer. And then once you get good at it and have to have an understanding of what it is, see how you can work it into your game. Because if you come here with this yeah. closed mindedness of, how can I extract judo to just make it work in jujitsu? I think you're going to fall short in many directions. I think so too. And I agree with you hundred percent. I think that, I think that's, you know, some people that have done the crossover come in with the, the mindset that you've said. And, and, and I think that then they find it more difficult, much better to learn, you know, the pure art of, of what you're doing and then to be able to cross it over. And uh, I, and I think that, like you said, then once you understand it, and it's understanding the concepts before you, uh, you know, then you can really adapt it. Right. So Neil, you've been uh, the face of judo, uh, the voice of judo, I believe they call you, uh, for for all these years. I mean, you've had a long career. So I'm going to ask you a, a super simple question to give you a chance to say. And if you can't answer the question or you don't feel comfortable asking the question, I'll answer it for you. But there's an interesting question that comes up in an interview process, oftentimes, whether you're trying to get a job or you're trying to do something big, and somebody would say, what is your unfair advantage? If I'm looking for somebody, I want to learn technical judo. I want to improve my game. Maybe I'm a jiu-jitsu practitioner. Maybe I'm a 13-year-old judo you know, kid, and my parents want to improve. Why would I hire Neil Adams? Why would I go to neiladamsjudo.com? Why would I go to, what is your unfair advantage as a judo professional? I'd like to think, uh, Chuck, that we, we look at, you know, because I, I think that people can look at somebody that's at the top of their game and think that it's all about all about the, um, uh, the higher level and all about how we and what we can do for the higher levels. And I, I'd like to think that what we did is we realized that we, we, um, we need to concentrate on grassroots and not only grassroots, but uh, getting even some of the best judoka in the world to understand and to revisit sometimes the concepts of of their sport. Because I and I think that if, when you look back at Jigoro Kano, you know, with his philosophies, and I think that you know he 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 his philosophies were there for a reason because it was all about understanding the sport and understanding what you do 
before you were allowed to develop. So, for example, if you look back 35, 40 years, you know, when a downgrade, a black belt, first degree, uh, degree black belt was a real first degree black belt, was meant something, meant a lot, right? Um, and the reason is, is that if you didn't have an understanding of the concepts of the sport, the uh, how to throw, the kazushi, the suruti, the, the, the uh, different direction lines, and if you didn't understand how it worked, then even if you beat people in a lineup or you, you weren't graded up to the next grade. And I kind of looked at that and I thought, well, there's something to that, you know, because we need to understand, you, we, we cannot fast track people to a first degree black belt or for, for, to a downgrade just because they're big and strong and able to smash the next person. I think that the good thing about our sport is that we need to understand how it works. And, you know, it's pretty much what we were just saying there about people coming into our sport and visiting our sport. We need to send them away with a true understanding of how it works because then we've done our job. And so I saw our job as that, you know, I saw our job as teaching the principles of how it works as well as uh, as being able to teach uh, Iliadis. If, if Ilias came to me with a problem or if you came to me with a problem or if Jimmy Pedro came to me with a problem, you know what I mean? So I can relate to you. You would relate to me. You, I hope, you know, you'd listen to some of the things that I said. But, you know, so at the highest level and the lowest level, you know, or the beginner levels, um, I think that that would be my advantage to be able to go to the two spectrum. For sure. I think that that for me, asking you that question sounds is, is a little bit goofy because I think the answer is is quite easy. You know, for those of us on the outside, I know recently you celebrated uh, 50 years in judo. And I know that sounds like a term, but what that says to someone like me is that you've experienced judo in many different realms, obviously starting off as a child, like a lot of the kids in our dojo. You started doing judo. You became a judo competitor. You probably didn't know what you were doing in the beginning. You became this... Uh, athlete as a teenager then you worked into you know you know the early adulthood and you started to take judo serious you ended up to be a world judo champion and you never left a lot of our champions you know they kind of sway away from the sports and times and sometimes they go into coaching for a short time but you have have had the fortunate side and i say your unfair advantage and it's not really unfair you've put yourself in the position to be the source of judo in the world for that, at least in the English speaking world. And I'm sure there's many others that don't understand English that would love to articulate more than they can with you as far as instruction goes. But so you've worked in every different way of judo. You've worked with kids, you've worked with, uh, you know, with beginners, adults, elite programs, and so on. Do you have, um, a, a specific part of judo when it comes down to commentating or coaching or coaching youth or coaching elite athletes? Is there a a piece of judo that you've found the most rewarding or the most enjoyable for you as a judoka? Do you know, I think that it's kind of progressed. And uh, I, I think I look at the time that I had as a competitor and it was magical, you know, up to 30, 31 years of age and some of the, the, the drug of winning and competing at the highest level. And that drug, and it was a, it is a drug, you know, and it, it's what people have a problem letting go of. And I, uh, I miss that. I, you know, still I get that. I, think I look at people when they're winning major tournaments and I think, 
wow. I mean, obviously, as I got older, you know, I, I'm not chasing it anymore. But some people are chasing it up to 40, you know, when they, they still want that little bit, you know, want that feeling back. And then I was lucky that I went into the commentary and that was by accident. And, it, you know, my first commentary pieces were terrible. They were more narration but and really badly presented. And, and But, you know, it was a learning process. And I can honestly say that, you know, when it came uh, to when it comes to the commentary, I really enjoy it. And I enjoy sometimes uh, getting I enjoyed getting better at it. And I enjoyed presenting. Uh, you know, then uh, obviously at the Olympics and stuff like that and uh, all the major events now, I just thoroughly enjoy it. And the coaching is the same. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going to uh, the Olympics as uh, team manager of the U uh, of uh, Britain, Great Britain. Uh, but it's relatively a short amount of time coaching at that level. You know, you have one or two Olympic cycles and then you go on to another part of your coaching career, which is a different coaching career, uh, and that is to pass on to, you know, uh, a grassroots level and, uh, and what we've been doing. And so I, I thoroughly enjoy that. I like to see the light bulbs go off sometimes. Where if we're, I'm in a class and I say, look, you know, have you thought about doing this? And what about this? And, and you know, if, if I could send somebody away with a golden nugget and uh, a, a light bulb moment, then that's a real thrill. For sure. I think that that's for teachers of all kinds. You know, for us, it's judo, but the impact that you have on especially youth, you know, somebody that's learning judo for the first time and to watch them really enjoy, sometimes you can bring out like a super basic technique that's that everyone knows. And you can, when you, when you see it click for that one particular athlete for the first time, it's, it is fun to watch the light bulbs go off. Like you're saying, to see that you've made a huge impact and, and possibly with, with your instruction and whatever you were able to get through with that athlete, that it's possible that you kind of brought them in to be lifetime judokas. And that's a huge reward. Well, you know, I had a lot of people visit, I had a full-time training group for 19 years, 18 years. And we had a lot of visitors, especially from the United States. We had all the top guys uh, came to train and at some stage for a, a week here, a month here, and, and some for a little bit longer. And I'd like to think that with we had, um, you know, I remember Canto coming uh, as a youngster, just coming in. Jimmy Pedro, when he was very young, he came in as a junior, uh, came in to train at the club. And I like to think that something within their judo, just something, you know, that I laid something that that, that helped them on their way, you know, because that's what we do. I think as, you know, I, I'm not their coach. Uh, I'm not any of their coaches. But what I have, I have been a teacher and sometimes being able to contribute to the big picture is something magical. And I, I like to think that if I've given something to the big picture, then I've done my job. You know, you absolutely have. Even it's trickled down to, you know, someone like me who went to San Jose State and trained under like Mike Swain. I know that, you know, Mike spent time with you. And, and if I look at like uh, the history of like a, a standard, what we call a standard Jujigatami you know, you're one of the the earliest ones that we can see on record that was just an absolute expert at this Jujigatami that became a standard. You know, and I know you worked with, you know, people like Bobby Berland and, you know, Mike Swain and, and many other American athletes that have brought in those techniques stateside. And, you know, those have become standard go-to attacks for 
everybody who went to school at San Jose State University, for example, and I know that you were, you played a big part in kind of relating those techniques to many of the other alumni from San Jose State that went on to share those techniques with others. So you have made an impact. It's really nice to see. That that's great to hear, you know, and that's the magical thing about it, you know. And uh, I, I I guess that if if I had uh, a purpose, you know, with with the teaching and with the coaching and stuff like that, that is one of my main purposes, you know, to to give to give something, you know. And I mean, I'm a stealer. I'm I'm a, I am a, somebody who steals techniques and I steal ideas. And but what I do do is develop them. I like to think that I developed them. I mean, no, nobody I mean, can say that Juju Katami, I developed. Juju Katami is mine or uh, Uchimata is mine. Or, but, but what we do is we, we see something and we, uh, we have an idea. And I think that the, the great uh, technicians are the ones that can take an idea and run with it and develop it and, and make it their own. It's a, bit, a little bit like a singer. Who sings the same song, but they'll sing it in a different way and they'll put their own stamp on it. So do you remember um, maybe one of the coaches or players that influenced you to become so strong with the Jujigatami? Would it happen to be Yaskovich? It was. Uh, it was. Alexander. Yeah, no, Alex, I watched Alex. Uh, he was, we were in the Junior World Championships and I was uh, looking for specific Newaza things that I wanted to specialize. and. Because I I had one or two small things that I could do, and I could do them quite well if I got in the right situation. But I wanted something. And I saw Alex, uh, Sasha, he was in the uh, final of the Junior World Championships, and he just rolled the uh, Japanese over and just ripped his arm out. I said, that's it. Wow. And that, I, I, and I went back, and, and I, from memory – uh, tried to visualize his way in, and my way in went different. Uh, I, I went in with the wrong arm, wrong arm, right arm for me, or left arm for me, right. But anyway, it was good for me, and I made it work, you know. And the, and the thing was is that I, I just uh, worked out a different way in, and then I learned his way afterwards so that then I could uh, relate to the difference between the two, and uh, and and so that helped me as well. But uh, definitely, he was uh, my first influence. Interesting that you say that because even here in the United States, two of our most successful players ever, both of which were really really good at this jujigatami, and both of them did it slightly different. And I've had instruction from both of them, both Mike Swain and Jimmy Pedro, who you also worked with quite a bit over the yeah. years. So the way uh, Pedro enters it and the way Mike had entered it was slightly different. So I was absorbing both sides. But that's super interesting to hear the background of of where these techniques come from. And I know we don't invent new moves, but the way you take them and kind of make them your own, you know, I had this inside joke here with, uh, with some teammates of mine. I had a move that I thought I invented when I was in college. And it was kind of funny cause it was, they were calling it the Jefferson, you know, it was just kind of goofy, a goofy little move. But <laughs> I, I later had a friend not long after that, that, that brought me a book that, that showed me my move. Not only did I not invent it, but it was actually published in, in writing. And it was, <laughs> there went my move. I guess it wasn't mine, but we, you know, we just take what we can and find it and, and do what we can to absorb and adjust and 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 re redo the way we make things work so uh that that's really cool to hear but it was your interpretation and and you made it work right Right. and and you know that that is one of the key points here is that uh at the end we have to make it work for sure So actually part of the uh, of the of the teaching 
is is how to make it work. I remember uh, I had um, one of my full timers uh, as a wrestling background. He had a wrestling background, so I, I was teaching pure judo, as pure as I could teach it. Anyway, so he was starting to learn some really good throwing. He's a good, really good stand up thrower. Although he he was really good on the legs as well, and uh, and I I looked at his style. And in the end, thought, well, I'm taking him my way, my direction, and I need to go towards his direction. So I ended up getting him to do a much better judo interpretation of Uranagi. And uh, and so we developed his judo uh, with his wrestling style, you know, or his wrestling background. And uh, it worked very well for him. And, you know, it, it's it's... Just something that sometimes you look at somebody and you you know you they have a different uh, a different balance and a different um, a different way and you've got to kind of go with the flow sometimes. I just did a really interesting one. I'm sorry, I, I'm talking, I'm talking. <laughs> um, I just did a really interesting one uh, with uh, Zantaraya. Love it. Your prime prime example, right, of somebody that can change something in midair. Uh, Two centimeters or an inch off the uh, off the floor, turn it to his advantage. He can counter, he can throw forwards, backwards, and he can transition as well. Terrific. He's one of my favorite to watch. I mean, they call him the cat, right? This guy, this guy's amazing, and his career yeah. has been going long. And like, I, I hope he can stick through to next yeah. year and pull off, you know, some success at the Olympics. That would be super fun to see. Henry Ford once said that quality means doing it right when nobody's looking. Right now, a lot of us are practicing judo on our own without our coaches and our senseis to help modify our movements. Neil made some really great points in the last segment about quality and understanding the principles of judo. Separating conditioning from technical training is something that we should all be thinking about. In the next segment, Neil will talk a little bit about his work with the IJF. We will then go into depth about his job as the referee supervisor and all the things that go on behind the scenes when developing rules for the IJF Tour. You will hear the story of a handful of world and Olympic champions rolling on the floor in a changing room, trying to come up with a consensus on some of the most controversial topics in judo. I will then put Neil in the hot seat to find out what rule changes we may be seeing in the future. We will finish up with a talk about the countries that are making strides to become powerhouses in the world of judo. Neil will give us his perspective on which countries are making big moves and why it's not necessarily the big judo countries that are making the biggest improvements. You know, speaking of the the big events, man, we all miss the the tour right now. I mean, I'm sure that you have been enjoying your time at home with the family, but Without the IGF tour, like we're struggling, you know, we used to get to enjoy watching these amazing events practically every every two weeks. And uh, so I want to, I had a fun conversation with you when you were here last year, and I thought it would be something that listeners would totally enjoy. Um, kind of a behind the scenes talk a little bit about the commentating and, and some of the work you do with the IGF, I thought was pretty interesting. First off, it's a whirlwind of a tour. Like there's times where you're gone. I don't know how many weekends per year. You could tell me that, but you know, what's it like, you know, trying to get visas? And you, you had this really interesting concept of of the way you were running around the world, trying to get into countries and, you know, you show up to do your work. And uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what the what it's like behind the scenes for this? 
Well, but I, you know, we have a group of people, IJF. Uh, everybody comes together, and uh, uh, all these international people come together. We do have separate jobs. Uh, we have one day where we'll eat together, and then everybody goes back in the, you know. But we all come together, and, and it's been going on for so long now. And everybody, you know, it's a really good atmosphere. And of course, um, when it comes to like, uh, well, because I do two jobs for IJF. Uh, so I'm a, a supervisor, referee supervisor, commentator. So I commentate all the major events, right. all the big Grand Slams, World Championships, Olympic Games I'm doing as well. That's separate. But but um, yeah, so all the major events commentating. And I have a great time doing it. We just slot in there. Sheldon is doing a, a cracking job. You know, he's doing such a good job there. And we've got some of our guest commentators coming in, Loretta. And, you know, so it's a great team. It, it really is a nice team. They're all uh, starting to work, you know, working well together. And we're going to get you in there as well. But that, that's another thing. I would love but, it. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're going to do it. it it's going to happen. But... And, 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 you know, we do miss it because it's all of a sudden come to an end. Uh, and, you know, so we're all chomping at the bit, waiting to get back in, get on, you know, uh, to the um, to the tour. But um, that uh, the big boss, Marriott Visa, will wait until it's the right time. We, we've still booked in for Zagreb. Uh, Zagreb is in September. Uh, whether it'll happen, it'll probably happen behind closed doors. At least if we do get there, then if we can do it behind closed doors, then we'll be able to still do the commentary and that will be a, a starter for 10. Yeah. And uh, and then, you know, September, I I think it'll all kick off uh, January with um, for sure Israel is going to go on and um, Tel Aviv. As far as the qualifications go, I think there was, what is it, five or six events that were kind of remaining before this all came to a halt. Do you know how they, have they decided yeah. what they're going to do as far as like finishing up the qualification period? I haven't. You know, I think that what they will do is if they can't do those five events, then I, I would think that, that that would be a problem, you know, but um, I, I'm sure, I mean, he's absolutely 100% on top of this. Uh, I haven't had anybody come back to me. I would tell say to you, I mean, if I knew anything for certain, uh, and none of us know anything for certain, so we're just waiting for the call. We're the same as you guys, you know, we're just right. waiting for the call. Okay, it's, it, we're ahead. I'm hoping that those five events will go bang, 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 whether they have to have them behind closed doors or not. I can see that 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 would be the situation. We'd still film them. Obviously, we'd still be able to broadcast them, which would be great, and um, and then give everybody the same chances that they would have had up to 2020. So can you elaborate on what you mean by behind closed doors? Are you talking about with no spectators, or what, what are you thinking? Well, I mean, I'm only thinking, you know, from my, uh, you know, we, we can't have people, like you said just now, Different countries are going to have different restrictions. And are they going to come in with masks or are they going to have to have a 10 meter um, distance? Are they going to have to, you know, what are they? I mean, the problem I can see with a stadium and, uh, you know, especially if you've got uh, a stadium in Japan, you know, you 
you either have everybody there or nobody. I I, right. I, I can't see how it wins. You know, I I can't see a, a really um, a proper way of doing it other than just saying, well, let's. You know, that's what we did here. I know that the football, the soccer, uh, they they held some of their matches behind closed doors. Right. You well, know, and by closed doors, just closed stadiums. That's what I mean. So sure. It's a bit of a strange one because you've got no atmosphere uh, and you're out there. It's just you against whoever. But yeah, I, I watched a about it. couple of the UFC events that were, you know, with no crowd and it was quite... Um, it, it was kind of different. Different, you know. You can hear the punches and stuff. It it was very brutal the way it sounded because typically, like when they, when the crowd is going crazy, you don't hear all the yeah. impact. So it was uh, it was pretty different. So I, you know, I'm I'm assuming that the people behind the scenes with the IJF are working diligently at this point to try to figure out how they're going to pull this off and how they're going to do it safely because that's the key is safety to make sure that you know all of our athletes are safe and you know we're a big sport when it comes to the number of countries that are participating and we've got a lot of countries coming in from all over the world so we got to make sure that things are safe before we start moving forward so i'm sure the IJF is on top of it but it's a good yeah they are it's a great team you know it's really a great team and it's you know it's been led really strongly and you know so that's a good thing for us so whatever's going to happen um, you know, will be for the you know with safety in mind, and also you know with um, making it as, uh, as fair as possible for the people that are still qualifying. Right. So moving on to your other role, you know, we, you you mentioned you got two roles with the IGF, and and one of them that it gets a lot of attention now, other than the obvious of commentating, but you're the referee supervisor, which is a which is a tough position. I'm sure there's a lot of, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I call it controversy, but there's a lot of uh, gray area in the work that you do. And there's a lot of people that feel differently with some of the rules. And it's one of those jobs where you can't make everybody happy. So I'm sure that's a little bit of yeah. a challenge for you. Could you tell us a little bit about the um, what it's like in the background for your team and, and who's on your team of the referee supervisors? Like how many of their, how many individuals are sitting in the room you know, before you do these videos where you guys are kind of going over specific situations and, and kind of explaining this is going to be the call, I, I'm interested to see what the background is before you go into those meetings. You know, who's involved in the smaller meeting? And I'm I'm assuming that you guys are really hashing things out in a very diligent way behind the scenes before you kind of get this thing in front of everybody. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what you've got to understand is that now we have uh, former fighters. We've got probably eight, eight uh, of us, former World Olympic champions, all part of the referee group. So we are there when, when we are a supervisor. We're sitting there with Mr. Barkos and Mr. Snyders, who are the uh, chief uh, head referee, uh, head referees. And uh, when we're sitting there with them, we have equal say in whatever happens out there. So for the first time ever, former fighters have been brought in to give their view. Right. And this is high level former fighters, right? So this has really opened up my eyes. But the interesting thing is, is that before those videos go out and before the, the rules are rolled out, uh, the CODACAM, which is led uh, by obviously Mr. Amura, and the uh, Japanese uh, Federation, which is led by Mr. Uh, Yamashita, um, they are working very closely with us. And so when a decision is made, it is, I, I, 
we've been in a situation where we have uh, uh, something that we know is going to be controversial. And when we know it's going to be controversial is because, like you said, you cannot make everybody happy. Leg grabs, you know, people still talking about leg grabs. Right. And we were in a situation there where we had uh, Russian representation and we had Japanese representation. We had the IJF. We had former fighters there. And none of us could come up with um, some of the leg grabs being allowed and some not. There were we, we had a 40, 60 uh, percent situation, different, uh, different situation where we were looking at it. And if you have to decide within eight seconds in a match as to whether somebody gets penalized or somebody doesn't, whether it was a valid technique or whether somebody meant to grab the legs or didn't. Uh, in the end, we decided that better not to have it than to have it. And this was an overall decision of everybody, top people. So when I hear somebody or, or you know, on, on these um, um, these people that write, uh, on these forums, you know, these people are writing saying they need to get somebody in there that knows what they're talking about. Right. This is top guys, <laughs> all right, yeah. sorting this out between us, right, and, and former World Olympic champions. And we've been in. Uh, we were in a changing room. It was bizarre. I, I wish we could have had a camera on it, because there was Mr. Yamashita, Mr. Yamura. There was uh, um, there was um, uh, Edzio Gamba. There was uh, myself, Yaskovich. There was um, Kathy Flurry. There was um, Udo Cuomos. and we were all rolling on the floor, going through these different situations, trying to work out something in a changing room. Somebody wow. walked in and went, "Oh my god, <laughs> what are these guys what doing? <laughs> you know, just, what are they doing? This is bizarre, you know." But we take it so seriously, and so you know, for for the fulfillment of judo, and it's not if if something like that leg grab situation isn't taken, isn't uh, it wasn't a decision that came easily, and it doesn't mean that it's absolutely definitely not there forever but it has to be a situation where and you know that in 1990 uh you know when uh, the soviet union split and all these different wrestling countries came into the fold with all their different ways of doing kataguruma and judo went like that and it was uh, you know uh, from lightweight up to heavyweight you know it was just bent over a little bit more and you know when you see that situation and you look at people diving at the legs and looking for a single or a double leg and you go well is that the way we want judo to be right and are we happy with the fact that it's stood up now and you know, I'm happy with that. I'm happy with the, you know, the way it's developed and the way it's gone to to more of a standing situation and more throwing and longer in Newaza. I mean, that longer in Newaza, that took us a long time to get that through. But it's looking great. I mean, there's yeah. been a lot more Newaza yeah. in the big competitions. It's, it's huge. I think that, um, sure. I think most people I talk to, you know, most elite athletes, it seems like a majority of the elite athletes are pretty happy with the thing, the way things are going. Of course, when you get to a recreational level, people that are kind of exploring with different, you know, martial arts, uh, they look at you like you're crazy. Well, why, why can't you grab the legs? You know, but of course these are not the people that we're aiming to please, but the people at the highest level of judo seem to be happy. 
I'm going to throw one out there because I know there's constant adjustments, but if we made it easier, because I think the, the thing is not just about the technique, but the making it the, the ability to referee and the way we judge things is very important to make sure that we take away some of the subjectivity because, you know, if there's the subjectivity is what causes problems in refereeing, right? So we need to make it crystal clear. Yeah. But let's say you brought back a leg grab and it's crystal clear. It's the same thing as now. It's a Shido unless you score. It's that simple. You score, well, you get a score. I, you don't score, you stand up and you I, take your Shido. I, I see that. And I, I you know, and I, you know, several of us are there that agree that, you see, it's not the ones, elite fighters, they're not the ones that moan. They just adapt sure. like that. You yeah. know, they can just come in. All right, if I can't do it, I just adapt. No problem. It's the lower levels, <clears throat> excuse me, that are, that are complaining. For sure. about it or the ones that have to teach uchimata or the t- the ones that have to teach more stand up pure judo rather than the other techniques right and so my argument is is that we would rather teach you'd be able to teach those i agree with you that the rules dictate the development and i, I think that now with the the level of the referees now because we we have had uh, we started off with 40 referees, and it's now uh, up to this Olympic Games. There were 20. It was reduced down to 20. I, I tell you, they're, they're so easy to work with the level of the refereeing up there. You know, they are having uh, all of the seminars, the joint seminars, referee coaching seminars. They have to come on the tatami. They have to participate. If they do not participate, they don't get into the top twenty. They have no chance of doing it. Right. So they have to get an understanding of what it what it what it is, you know, and how it feels, and and the difference between, like you said, there, somebody diving for the legs. It's it's down to intention, and I think that if we can get the intention sorted, because do we want somebody diving for the legs, double leg, winning an Olympic title? Probably or not. throwing with an uchimata. I don't know. Right. So because of the uh, the delay or the you know the postponement of the Olympic Games, this is going to change some of the things that you're going to probably run into in the next couple of years. Because I know we work in you know quadrennials where we have a four year period to make adjustments, and based on you know historically we've always done a two year qualification period for the next Olympics, which would be Paris in 2024. Now you've only got one year to make adjustments when you typically would have two. So is there anything on the radar, something that you could share, or even any conversations in the background of you think that some decisions that you guys may begin to discuss in 2021 at the close of the Olympics next summer that you would maybe try to implement for the next quad? Well, without getting myself into trouble, um, <laughs> we we uh, often we don't agree, or we don't all get in there and agree. You know, there's uh, the, some of us want certain things. Uh, and I've never been uh, a, a big. I think there's too much of a differential with the Wazari. Sure, See, that's that's my own personal. That's huge. And um, you know, uh, but you know, that's so they know that you know. So it's I'm not saying anything to you that they don't know. And um, so right. I'll always push for that. I think it needs to be a little bit closer together. Um, but the interesting thing is because of course the argument is oh well you know two former cokers. Ca- win a match right straight but the interesting thing is is that people are still going for ripple i don't see people going for the smaller score 
I agree. Necessarily. You know what I mean? It's, there's still people are looking to the overall. You know, it's a little bit like in soccer, you say, well, okay, so we count the corners, uh, the amount of corners that we get, we'll count those. You know, I still think people would still go for goal. Yeah, no, I, and I think that you guys have the stats on that. It seems to be that there are more wins by Epon. So I think that the IGF can prove that with facts that, you know, look, the number of Epon wins is bigger than it was, you know, some years back. So I think that that's been a success statistically that that things are kind of moving in the right direction because after all, in our sport, Epon is the aim. And that that's the objective of judo is to gain that Epon. I think for me, one of the main reasons that I want it stronger is because I want the coaches to teach the importance of the Kazushi and the Suruti all the way through so that rather than people, you know, just landing and getting a score, I, I want them to carry on with the hands and, and, and to follow it right the way through. And, and I, I want the coaches to teach that. And I need that to be such because it's such an important part of our sport, you know, and without the beginning part, then the end part is very difficult to achieve, you know? So right. I think that it's a m- massive part. So I'm going to fire one more question at you before we take a slight break and transition into something different, but I want to put you on the spot okay. just, just for fun a little bit. Um, with all the travel you've done, and, and you've been fortunate in the judo world to travel more than, more than most, and you've seen a little bit of everything. We know the French are good at judo. We know the Japanese are good at judo. We know of some of the up-and-coming countries do you have any insight or any any prediction or do you see things in any country that maybe some of us might not be aware of? Do you have I want to see if you can maybe pinpoint some countries that have done some very big improvements and let's say somebody that you think will be a force on the tour in the next 5 to 10 years. Any countries that are making big improvements that you see? I think if you look at some of the small countries that have to make adjustments, you know, because of lack of uh, randery partners and you know like Slovenia for the women you know they small group and with that small squad uh, and we see it often in a lot of different sports sometimes so, uh, um, you'll get a small group will put out a lot of world and Olympic champions and you've got to look at that and say why is it down to intensity the coach you know and and, and the feeling uh, between those students. And I think that um, Slovenia, uh, Kosovo, you know, was another one. He's got this small group, right. keeps putting them out there, you know, and and, he, and it's not just the girls as well, it's the boys, you know, and they, I know that they haven't got the the bodies to fight in Kosovo, but then they come a, abroad, they, they do their little bit of training in Japan or they do the European training camps, the international training camps. But what they're doing at home is important. I think we need to look at what they do as small groups in order to make themselves better. Uh, how intense is their training? Their physical training, their uh, uh, their technical training, their you know their skills. I know that when I had uh, my small group of uh, uh, full time trainers, that uh, my intention was to make them technically better. You know, and by putting that concentrated effort on that, then it came off. You know, it was winning. I think that. If you have a look at um, uh, Uzbekistan now with uh, Ilyas, uh, you know, I mean, he's got everybody training like an absolute lunatic, like he trains, you know, he's just, right. you know, <laughs> like he's, he's like in there just killing everybody going, 
follow this guys you know and yeah and he's got two or three there Bobanov's in there and he, you know he's got there's three of them in there that probably got chances of olympic medals if they went in now they'd have chances of olympic medals so i think that you know that those kind of countries you look at just because they're small and just because i mean you know obviously in japan weight of numbers korea you know so many people doing it france you know they've got INSEP and they've got the national center they they just got 150 to 200 people on the mat every day both centers at, at two different levels and you go well you've got to produce haven't you you know what i mean you've got to produce from that right but the smaller groups as well are producing which is interesting tune in next week to listen to part two of the adams interview Next week, we'll be joined by Nikki Adams as we discuss some of the things that Judo Canada has done that has led to some huge success under the leadership of former champion Nicholas Gill. Neil and I will talk about some of his picks for next year's Olympics and how excited he is for a potential matchup between Zantaraya and Japan. Whether it's Abe or Moriyama at 66 kilos, time will tell. for listening to JudoCast. Please remember to hit the subscribe button on your podcast app. For show notes and additional content, visit judocast.com. That's J-U-D-O-Cast.com.